Mm. And the way that I view spirituality is that there's no, if you are a human being, you are, you have a spirituality. I'm much more inclined to believe that to be human is to have a spiritual impulse. And by spiritual impulse, I mean the, the need to create meaning, the need mm. to find meaning, to seek it, to substantiate it. And spirituality, I view as your relationship to the highest and most transcend, transcendent value. And so for a lot of us who are living in this incredible grind of, you know, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, it's like we're under this spell where the highest and most transcendent value, you know, becomes an inflated sense of egoism or, you know, a very crude hedonism, you know, or we're just confused. You know, but fundamentally, all of us, no matter what labels you attribute to yourself, no matter how positively or negatively you view terms like spirituality, that's something you share in common with the rest of humanity is to be human is to need meaning. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that is a part of what it means to be a reflecting being in the cosmos, because are we are reflecting the depths from which we were formed. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author and educator Amal Jacobson to discuss his book, Beyond Materialism, Spirituality for the 21st Century. In a wide-ranging conversation, Amal talks about the limiting perspective of materialism, how spirituality is part of what it means to be human, and his experience on the path of Tantra and its ability to help us overcome what limits us through the recognition that everything stems from a single divine source. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Amal Jacobson is a teacher, educator, and author. For the last 20 years, he has traveled widely across Europe and the U.S., teaching classes and leading workshops and retreats on Tantra and meditation. Writing under the pseudonym A.J. Hernandez, he is the author of two novels. He has a Master's of Philosophy and Religion from the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he graduated from its Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program. Currently, Amal is a teacher at the Progressive School of Long Island, based out of New York. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, Beyond Materialism which seeks to challenge the dominant materialist worldview and explores what role spirituality and mysticism might play in addressing the social, political, and ecological challenges of the 21st century. Amal, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank I'm you. excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very happy that you're here, and I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. We graduated from the same program. And so I noticed a lot of themes. I can tell, you know, there's a lot of kinship in there, but I thought that maybe the best place to begin mm -hmm. would be for anyone who's listening or watching this, who may not know exactly what materialism is, materialist worldview. So I thought that yeah. maybe you could kind of describe what that is. Yeah. So when I think about materialism, I always think of that sort of famous joke that David Foster Wallace always told, where there's these two fish that are swimming through the ocean one day, 
just enjoying being a fish. And then this older fish swims by and says, nice water today. And as he swims by, one fish turns to the other and goes, what the hell is water? You know, and, you know, of course, the joke there is that when something is as ubiquitous to your existence as water is to a fish, you don't recognize it. And you don't understand how it's the superstructure that is informing everything else and upon which you depend. And so materialism, I would argue, is at the bedrock of most people's modern understanding of the world and certainly most intellectual, scientific, rationalistic ways of looking at the world today as well. And it's usually defined by the idea that the that matter is the only thing that exists in the universe and anything that is apparently non-material, like your consciousness or thoughts or feelings, are byproducts of matter. They are ultimately explainable by material interactions. They have no independent existence of their own. And it seeks to use that basic foundation to explain, you know, that consciousness is merely a byproduct of the brain and so on and so forth. Right. So that's what the book starts with, at least initially, mm -hmm. and then moves on from there. Okay. So moving on from materialism, it's, you know, the- yeah, No I, big deal. Yeah. Well, I, and I agree. And that it is, it permeates everything. And mm -hmm. we often don't under, understand or see the assumptions that we carry that mm -hmm. are so deeply embedded in this materialistic worldview. But what's wrong with the materialistic worldview? Well, I would say that materialism as a worldview is actually she helps shepherd us out of an older era of history that every era of history, I feel like, is a consequence of the worldviews that we bring to bear to it. You know, so whatever is happening in the world, it's like an enactment of the worldview that has possessed, you know, humanity at that point in time. And so materialism helped transition humanity into, I would argue, a much more rationalistic era in which we're much more focused on empirical data than we were before. But I would say that if you look at the problems that we're facing right now, be they social or political or ecological things that you were talking about before, I see them as symptomatic of the problems of a worldview that is essentially past its expiration date. Hmm. I would say that its inherent assumptions and its inherent limitations constrict scientific progress. They constrict us from seeing opportunities or solutions that otherwise would be visible to us. And I think that what a lot of us don't always think about is how the world is always seen through a perspective. That's how you can understand anything is, you know, if you see a painting, it's in a frame. And any frame that you're looking at something with shows you something and it helps you understand, okay, this is it. Here's the composition. This is what it means. But it necessarily excludes something. And when you forget that you're looking at things from a particular point of view, and then you begin to assume that the way that you're looking at things is just the objective truth of the universe, and this is reality in and of itself, then there's all sorts of 
you know, I would argue weird things that happen, especially when we start thinking about our ultimate questions in the universe and how we derive meaning out of it. Mm. And so the book seeks to explore not so much whether materialism is true or not, but what good it does us mm. in the 21st century in facing the climate catastrophes that are currently unfolding and all of the other challenges that you see in the headlines every day. You know, how much are these problems a product of our worldview? And therefore, how much can we actually fix them unless mm. we're willing to challenge that worldview? Right. And it seems to me that the major challenge to the materialistic worldview is consciousness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because our view of consciousness from a materialist perspective isn't coherent with mm. how we actually experience the world. Right. In, I mean, I'm not the first person to talk about this, but the great irony of a materialistic outlook is that nobody can actually live as a materialist. Mm. It's something you have to assume ironically, because if you were to live as a true materialist, it's like consciousness has no meaning. It's just this sustained hallucination mm. that is being had by a self-animating automaton in an ultimately dead universe. And your the actions you take are deterministic of your neurology, but nobody, nobody lives that way. We have to live with a sense of purpose and a sense mm. of meaning. And the best that a materialist outlook can give you is that you have to ironically assume a position as though life were meaningful, as though life had a purpose. Um, and that fundamental, yeah, lack of coherence points to, in my view, a major, major weakness in it being a compelling, yeah, outlook that can, it, it, it seems to me that it's pointing to an obvious blind spot that shows that there's other ways that we're going to have to chart forward. Right, right. Yeah, I like one of the things that you wrote in the book, and this, I think, was part of the examination of the history of materialism. And I don't remember if you cited him directly. You'll have to forgive me on that. But I think what you were writing was kind of informed, in a sense, by Thomas Kuhn and the idea of mm -hmm. shifting paradigms, you know, his book, The Structures yeah. of uh, Scientific Revolutions. And you know, in the history that's often used to explain paradigm shifts, it goes from the model of the universe where, you know, the earth was at the center and everything mm -hmm. kind of circled around the earth, but then there were observable differences or uh, <laughs> phenomena that you couldn't explain. So they created all these epicycles where the planets yes. were these like little loops. And I loved one of the things that you wrote in regards to that and in consciousness was that the epiphenomena, which is the idea that consciousness is a epiphenomena of the brain, that it's just something, you know, it's a byproduct of all these chemicals and whatnot. But uh, you noted that the epiphenomena, it seems, have become the epicycles of the postmodern age. And I like that because I've been saying, you know, what Kuhn always said is that what led to a new worldview or a new paradigm was an anomaly that could not be answered by the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. And I've been saying for a long time now that consciousness is that anomaly that's going to lead And how funny to... it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how funny it is that we treat an consciousness as an anomaly right. when actually it's the foundation of our yeah. experience. 
Yeah. And that's, to me, just the weirdest part of this materialist outlook is they treat the most foundational thing as just this weird thing that you shouldn't trouble yourself with too much, but we're poking and prodding the brain. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the fact that some have said that, you know, and I think you alluded to this, that consciousness is just an illusion. And mm -hmm. I always think it's like, well, if it's an illusion, there's still something that's experiencing that illusion yeah. <laughs> who's having the illusion <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah i mean there's plenty of non-materialist thinkers who also think that this is an illusion but yeah. i think they've thought through that proposition maybe a little bit more deeply <laughs> yeah yeah i'd agree with that so when it comes to consciousness i think there is this connection to spirituality in a sense mm -hmm. and i was curious if you could talk a little bit about how you view spirituality and there's something I really like that I'm going to let you kind of discuss spirituality in general, and then I'll go to the mm -hmm. thing that I really like about what you wrote. Okay. <laughs> I'm held in the suspense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that when a lot of people hear that term spirituality, alarm bells can go off. You know, maybe if you're not a spiritual person in the first place, then you might not think that, but I think for a lot of, you know, rational, skeptical people out there, there's this, I would say, a natural tendency to associate the scientific with the rational. And anything that isn't scientific in that framing is by default unscientific. Mm -hmm. And so spirituality becomes associated with all sorts of religious connotations and religion has all sorts of tribalistic connotations and dogmatic connotations and you know these ideas that they're based in irrational beliefs and subservience to some scriptural or spiritual authority but i would argue that that's a, a very narrow and historically conditioned way of looking at spirituality by historically conditioned what i mean is the perspective that I just outlined of how a normal scientific skeptical person might view even a word like spirituality, that's a very Western perspective because the Western idea of this split between faith and reason, between science and spirituality is based out of how science in the West grew out of a crucible in which it was held within against the tension of the Catholic church. And so this split happened in the Western mind. But in other parts of the world, they view that completely differently. And they, they do not necessarily think that spirituality is something that's faith-based. They don't see a split between faith and reason. And so that's what I mean by, by saying that it's narrow and it's historically conditioned. Mm -hmm. And the way that I view spirituality is that there's no, if you are a human being, you are you have a spirituality i'm much more inclined to believe that to be human is to have a spiritual impulse and by spiritual impulse i mean the the need to create meaning the need to find meaning to seek it to substantiate it and spirituality i view as your relationship to the highest and most transcend, transcendent value and so for a lot of us who are living in this incredible grind of you know late capitalism whatever you want to call it it's like we're under this spell where the highest and most transcendent value you know becomes an inflated sense of egoism or mm. you know a very crude hedonism you know or we're just confused 
you know, but fundamentally, all of us, no matter what labels you attribute to yourself, no matter how positively or negatively you view terms like spirituality, that's something you share in common with the rest of humanity is to be human is to need meaning. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that is a part of what it means to be a reflecting being in the cosmos, because are we are reflecting the depths from which we were formed. And to me, that's what spirituality is. Spirituality is this universal impulse of what it means to be, you know, aware and sentient and thinking in the universe and the necessity to reflect upon those depths and figure out what the hell is going on mm. and what do I aspire to? Where is my life going? Those sorts of fundamental questions I view as spirituality and not necessarily whether I believe in or disbelieve in a particular deity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I really like that answer. The and I want to go back to something you said, but before I lose my train of thought, the two yeah, things you that, held me in suspense. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the two things that I really liked, I know I said there was one, but there are actually two. Is one is that, and you kind of alluded to this, that spirituality is not about faith, but it's about practice. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect, and this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit, and I've been thinking about it in terms of the language of awakening, because mm -hmm. I'm really, I've become very uncomfortable with this language oh, yeah. of awakening and this idea of awakening. Me too. And, be, and for me, and I'd love to know what you think, why you're uncomfortable with it. But from my perspective, it is that the way it's used is always as gaining knowledge that mm -hmm. I now have access to truth and it and I'm seems so special me, because of it yes and it always <laughs> seems to me that what's going on is it's just a shift from one worldview to another worldview and what always seems to be lacking is a moral aspect to it and mm -hmm. that's the second thing that you talk about that I really appreciated is that with spirituality, that there always seems to have to be this ethical component to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, God, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm going to I'm going to hook, hook on to your awakening bit because yeah, yeah, I sure. completely share your sentiments on this. You know, I have spent a lot of time in, you know, communities that orient themselves around questions of spirituality and around meditation practices. And I have found that it's very easy to use the term spiritual as like a cudgel that you can mm. use to bludgeon down everybody who you think isn't as spiritual as you are. And to me, that's it's it's a contradiction in terms because if spirituality is anything, you know, it's a recognition of my interconnectivity with the whole, you know. And I I, I talk a lot in the book about mysticism. To me, that's the core of the mystical insight. The core of the mystical vision is a visionary experience of your embeddedness, of your interdependence, and your interconnectivity. And so. If I'm going to have some super wonderful experience of being connected to the cosmos, and the first thing I do when I come out of that experience is use that as a way to put myself higher than other people, it's like, I might as well not have had the experience. What the hell use did it do? 
And so that speaks to the moral aspect of it is that, you know, uh, I guess I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but it is related. You know, when I think of the life of the Buddha, you know, the Buddha had this experience, which is what I'm delineating, the experience of awakening, right? Because the Buddha literally even means the awakened one. And the legend goes that as he came out of it, he spent days wondering what he was going to do because he felt like this path is too difficult for people and they're never going to be able to do what he did. And when you look at what the Buddha then spent the rest of his life teaching, he, he focuses by and large on morality, you know, that it's morality and ethics that creates this kind of enlightenment that we're all talking about. It's not just like some mind melting vision. It's something you live. Mm. And if those incredibly attractive experiences that are digested by your ego don't lead to that social moral good, then you, you're doing a profound injustice to yourself and to the, to the community within which, into, in which you're embedded. It's like you're betraying something very deep um, within yourself. Not that I necessarily judge anybody for doing that because I have certainly you know, done versions of this over and over and over again in my life. I would say that you know, whatever the opposite it is of that interconnectivity, of that interembeddedness, it's this atomistic ego that thinks it's so wonderful and special and high above everybody else. And I'm awakened and you're all asleep. You know, I'm conscious and you're deluded. You know, that sort of divisive us and them groupism, you know, that's the opposite. Mm. And it's very easy, you know, to get pulled in that direction because the ego, in my view, it's superpower. My, at least my ego, that's all I can speak <laughs> of. My ego's superpower is to turn anything that might threaten it into something that strengthens it, mm. you know? And the only, in my experience, the only way to really counteract that in any meaningful way is to change the way that I'm living my life concretely in a way that can be socially and recognized mm. because otherwise it's not doing any good. Even not to myself, because I might think, oh, I'm, I'm doing my meditation and I'm experiencing such wonderful states, you know, but if, through, if my actions are constantly betraying that, what progress is actually being made? Right. You know, that's my view. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't, I don't trust it when others talk about being enlightened and I don't trust it for myself. <laughs> you know? uh, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, I always like to, and I, I've stated this a few times in the podcast, but I can't help myself. I'm going to do it again. But there's a quote by Thoreau and Walden that's something like, I have never met a man who is quite awake. If I had, how could I have looked him in the face? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's an yeah. interesting quote. Thoreau, yeah. you said? Yeah. 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 It's in Walden. Yeah. Thoreau's my guy. Yeah. Yeah. So no, so I, yeah, because I thought about Buddhism as well and recognize that the path is one of morality. And even mm -hmm. in, I think the Western tradition where we have, I think a lot of our ideas of enlightenment are informed through Plato, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but even in Plato, you know, it's the good, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> the center of it is the good. And that's a moral something i you know i <laughs> the form you know to know the good is to be good and these ideas of virtue are inherent in plato so it's there wherever you look i think these mm -hmm. notions of morality and i think that we've kind of forgotten that and that i think is so important to kind of get back to them 
And um, the platonic idea is that the beautiful and the true are unified right, with the right, good. Yeah, you can't divorce those three. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I always forget that. I'm still working. The coffee's still going through here. So something that you had said, I kind of want to go back to it. And it was this idea, you had mentioned capitalism. And capitalism mm -hmm. is so deeply embedded in this materialistic worldview and mm -hmm. it seems to have gotten its tendrils into some of our notions of spirituality that's for uh, sure and i was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit yeah god what a beast that is to yeah yeah untangle well you know capitalism sort of reminds me of what i was just talking about with the ego you know, where it's like the ego's super superpowers to turn anything into a threat, into an asset. And capitalism is famous for its ability to do the same thing. Perhaps most famously in the 60s, it takes a countercultural movement, you know, and then you just slaps it on a t-shirt and sells it. You know, we're, we're at the point now where, I mean, I'm a teacher, same as you are. My kids literally think that Nirvana is a brand. They don't even know that it's a band. And so capitalism has really digested a lot of spiritual traditions and spiritual technologies in a way that, yeah, I would say is the epitome of everything we've been discussing of betraying an ideal with the action. You know, because when I think about a region of the United States that associates itself most explicitly with this sort of spiritual outlook. I think of the Bay Area, you know, and there's a lot that I love about how much that spiritual outlook has permeated the Bay Area. But if I look at it objectively, you know, what has this region of the world that I love so much, what is it concretely contributed to the world? And it's like Facebook. Google, <laughs> Apple, you know, just these massive monsters that have just, that are eating the world and digesting it. And spirituality in the Bay Area is used to grease the wheels hmm. of that exploitative economy. It's mindfulness gets divorced from the Buddhist ethic and it becomes about how I can be a more, a more emotionally well-adapted exploiter. You know, how how I can be more mindful of how disturbing it is to that my company is psychopathically enacting its will on the planet. And just I can just sort of transcend that in my own serene private sense of wellness, right. you know, which is one of these other terms that anytime I hear hear it just makes me want to run for the hills. Yeah. But it, yeah. It, it's it's sad it's i guess there's an emotional chord that's being struck there because for me it's something sacred you know and i don't want to be some sort of gatekeeper where i'm just like oh that's all bad that's all crap and i am i want to poo poo all over all of these wonderful things that people it's not that right. it's much more that i hate to see something that can be used for such a profound good be used so thoughtlessly and recklessly in a destructive direction or even, right. even just, just a direction that's just aimed even at just a pure consumption. Right. It's just, it's just a waste. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking for me. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's a valuable critique. You know, I, you know, one of the things you noted is that mindfulness meditation is just one form of meditation, that there are other yeah. kind of meditations that probably are not conducive to the capitalist enterprise. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and I also share your concerns with wellness and I see on a couple of different levels, I know that these like wellness clinics are mm -hmm. popping up all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I often have to wonder, you know, it's like, well, what exactly are you selling? Because that's what's yeah. being sold. They're selling this. And, but yet at the same time, I know, for example, that it's even getting into universities. I know that the UC Irvine, has a wellness kind of clinic or something mm -hmm. like that, but there's a wellness component to things. And I think that's true, not just of UCI, but other universities as well. They're bringing in this wellness and often it's being funded. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because I see that as like, I'm sure they're going to do a lot of good. Yeah. You know, it's Hopefully. not like, I just think it's all terrible, but like one of the things my mind is going to right now is just the big money. That's right. now going into things like psychedelics, right. you know, which is, I mean, if there's any, any thing that has a revolutionary potential to totally transform people's consciousness like that, you know, psychedelics can affect that sort of change, but then big money only comes in because they're expecting a return, right? you know? And so it's like, I don't know what that's going to look like and how much mystical visionary experience that can be affected through psychedelics which to me are, seem like innately a threat to this sort of insane consumption extraction economy that we're a part of and yet how much can that be digested by you know that capitalist machine i don't know the answer to that question yeah. all i know is that it makes me uncomfortable when yeah. i see so much investment going in a direction that ought to be you know, a rev a force for, you know, for counterculture, for revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So what comes to my mind, <laughs> and this is a little bit of a diversion, and, and this is not part of your book, and we'll get back to your book, but what comes to mind was that the internet it really emerged out of the counterculture in yeah. the Bay Area mm -hmm. and was deeply informed by psychedelics. And my understanding yeah. is that a lot of people who were still working in Silicon Valley were very psychedelic friendly. Yeah. And the original still are. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the original vision was that it could be a counter to the dominant social structure. And that language was, well, if we just, you know, open up everyone's minds, this is a way mm -hmm. to challenge those powers and to create a more equitable society. And it was good, right? There were good intentions, mm -hmm. good ideas there. But then you see those folks, you know, like Zuckerberg and Musk yeah. and, you know, all the others coming in and it has taken away from that original idea. And so I was just thinking about that history of it and this what everyone keeps calling this renaissance of psychedelics there seems to be that similar idea of hope that it can challenge the social structure and i'm hoping that we can learn our lessons from the last time yeah i mean the internet is just a substructure now of surveillance capitalism yeah, that's how yeah. 
<laughs> you know, that's how it enacts its will. Right. And then AI is just a derivative of surveillance capitalism. Right. And so who knows? Yeah. Who knows where this yeah. is going? Yeah. But Pandora's box is probably already been opened at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we can put things back in. I think we're way <laughs> beyond those. So let me get back to your book and I'm going to change the topic a little bit here because a theme in the book that you bring in is Tantra and yeah. you, you teach Tantra. And so just like with materialism, I'm going to ask you to try to define or explain Tantra because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about mm -hmm. what Tantra is. Yeah, I mean, Tantra is uh, a harder term to explain than materialism. Yeah. Sometimes I have to be worried about even throwing around the term Tantra. But, okay, if I will be bold enough then to try to define it, <laughs> I see mysticism as the use of symbols to approach something that's beyond symbols. And so Tantra is fundamentally a mystical orientation that is I would say radically all embracing. So what I mean by that is it tries to take extremely seriously the idea that everything in the universe, including the things that horrify you and terrorize you and cause so much pain are all expressions of a singular divinity. And that is fundamentally different from a lot of other spiritual or religious orientations, because many of these spiritual orientations are based on renunciation, or they're based in, you know, ideas of do this, don't do that. This is good for you. That is bad for you. And it's not so much that Tantra doesn't do that, you know, but it's much more that it seeks to say to the world, okay, you know, the world has the capacity to confuse me, to hurt me on my spiritual path, to keep me from progressing. And there's all of these things in the world that can distract me, you know, all sorts of nice shiny objects. And so I can try to escape all of those things that attract me and put myself in a cave, you know, and meditate there. That's another long tradition that comes out of the South, South Asia. Or how can I engage skillfully with the world such that the things that would ordinarily be the cause of my bondage become the, you know, liberative tools that help me in my quest of emancipating myself from my limitations. You know, how can I break the chains of these bondages by seeking to skillfully engage with them? And, you know, so Tantra as an orientation exists in many of the different religions that you see come out of South Asia. So there's Buddhist Tantra, which is essentially Tibetan Buddhism. There's Hindu Tantra, there's Jain Tantra, and so on. And that tantric orientation has been grossly, I don't even like this term, but if there was ever a term that we can use this for, it's this, it's tantra, misappropriated mm. in the West and aggressively marketed, you know, as this tantra or like spiritual sex. Right. And the origins of that are much more, God, I mean, I could just go on mm. about this all day, but okay. So let's say that an ordinary religious orientation towards sex mm. would be, you know, it's a sin, you know, it's a reflection of your fallen nature 
And then there's a priest class that is supposedly, you know, transcended their sexual needs and that makes them purer than you, you know, and the, the tantric worldview is how can I engage, you know, with something like my sex life such that it becomes a part of my spiritual life instead of something, you know, that holds me back, you know, or, you know, crudifies me or whatever, you know, these religious ideas. And that has been divorced from its social and cultural and spiritual context and just, you know, been marketed as how long can you hold your org money with this super sketchy, you know, guy who's running it and so on and so forth. Mm. But yeah, it's interesting because Tantra has a notorious reputation in South Asia as well, but for completely different reasons that have nothing to do with sex. Mm. And I explore this in the book about how that notorious reputation in South Asia of Tantra, as much as it is based in my view on a, a misunderstanding, is still actually much closer to what Tantra actually looks like. But it's much more, Tantra is not so much about how can I enjoy something as much as I possibly can. It's much more how can I overcome all of my limitations, my mm. mental limitations, my emotional limitations, my psychological limitations, my fears, my insecurities. How can I break these bondages by learning to confront all the things that are supposedly dangerous? Because mm. everything that I think is dangerous is coming from the same divine source as everything right. else. So let me take that seriously. That's Tantra. Yeah, yeah. There's a really good long-winded, but <laughs> no, 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 no. I appreciate that quite a bit because Tantra is always something that I really struggle to explain. And mm -hmm. what I normally will tell students when it comes up into class is that, you know, yes, Tantra is not about developing the ability to have a six hour orgasm. It is a <laughs> my understanding was that it was that everything was so kind of, I don't want to say rotten, but kind of <laughs> that there had to be something that was kind of radical to mm -hmm. challenge the social structures that we have found ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that that's one of the reasons why in South Asia, it's seen as kind of an outside, uh, uh, movement and is a challenge, you know, something that's not mm -hmm. really embraced because it is a challenge to the powers that be, but also to the effect of seeing that everything is God. And if everything is God, then that doesn't exclude anything. It doesn't exclude yeah. the pain. It doesn't exclude the feces. It doesn't exclude, you know, mm -hmm. the things that we might consider impure. Exactly. The things that are considered impure are still divine. Yeah, precisely. It takes that idea seriously. Yeah. And that can be scary. It can be right. repulsive, you know, but ultimately, what is your spirituality worth mm. if it can't contain the totality of what this world actually is? Right. If if spirituality is based on a sort of escapist mindset or a sort of divisive mindset, then 
I think that in the long run, it just creates more of that divisiveness. Or if, if it's based in escapism, it can be used as a political tool to dominate right. people. Right. You know, I mean, there's so there's such a long history in places like India, you know, of oppressing lower caste people under the basis that this world's all an illusion anyway, and just follow your the dharma of your lower caste, you know, and you'll you'll do a better time, having better life next time. And obviously, those are incredible distortions, the very subtle and profound ideas. But I think that that desire to escape, you know, our suffering, that desire to, you know, to be repul- you know, to be repulsed by something and run in the other direction, is so deep in our animal nature, you know, and what I mean by animal nature, I don't mean lower nature, I just mean our nature as, you know, an organism that's conditioned by millions of years of having to run away from predators. And if we want, you know, to evolve, if we want to be able to expand beyond these boundaries, we have to be willing to look these aversions in the eye, Hmm. you know, and embrace what non-dual really implies right and to me that's the spirit of tantra Mm. and so i focus a lot on tantra in the book not only because it's what i have a lot of experience with it's the tradition i've been practicing for many many years but also because i just really feel like it has something profound to offer to the Mm. world right now and i see that it can be something that it can it has universal application, these ideas. It doesn't have to be exclusive to some particular group in some region of the world. Right. Yeah. You made a comparison in the book to some of the Western esoteric traditions mm-hmm. uh, with Tantra. And I really like that, that some of these esoteric traditions could be seen in that sense, that there's a commonality to them. Well, I mean, I'm not so sh- Let me put it this way. I said much earlier, you know, that spirituality is a part of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if I take that idea seriously, then that yearning, which I view as a universal one, has been popping up throughout history, according Mm -hmm. to the cultural matrix, you know, from that was conditioning it. And so my perspective is that if we can look past the exoteric, you know, literalistic Mm. understanding of a religious belief, there's a kernel there that speaks to that universal spiritual impulse that I share with everybody, including Mm. people who identify as atheists, you know, or non-spiritual, you know, all of us need a narrative that we live by, you know, and many of these narratives, which have been stood the test of time for thousands of years, have something extremely valuable to offer if we're able to look past the more dogmatic, divisive aspects of how religion has played out in history. And so, of course, I see so many similarities between Western and Eastern esotericism, because these are just different culturally conditioned ways of describing or pointing towards something that is beyond culture, that is beyond you know, the name or the face that we seek to describe, you know, that ultimate grounded being. Some people will call it, and that's actually what I really appreciate, by the way, about Hinduism, although I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a Hindu, 
is I love how there's this omnivorous sort of attitude towards how divinity can express itself with this face and that face and this name and that name and this role and that role. I think that's really getting at something crucial about you know, how it feels to be a human in a universe that sometimes feels profoundly benevolent mm. and other times yeah. <laughs> profoundly, profoundly violent and yeah. destructive. Yeah, yeah. I usually describe the Indian religious traditions as being rather inclusive. Um, yeah. And because they do recognize the validity of other spiritual experiences and mm-hmm. tend not, I mean, you know, it becomes difficult because every religious tradition and you noted this in the book at some point ends up serving power and i think just that, look at the hindu nationalists right yeah, now exactly India. that's yeah. what, that's what i was thinking of is that you do get that but i think that there is that core idea of respect and recognizing and honoring a multitude of spiritual experiences now i probably should have started out with this Maybe I need to start doing this with my guests and start asking them, well, tell me a little bit more about yourself because I always start with the bio, but I'm curious about your experience and kind of what led you to exploring Tantra. If I remember correctly, and I have his name written here, wasn't your teacher Nanda Murthy? Is that correct? Or... Well, I would say that I was taught more by a representative. Of okay. All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I know that you discuss Ananda Murdy quite a bit in the book. So I was wondering if maybe yeah, yeah. just if you could maybe, you know, tell a little bit about what led you to learning about Tantra and maybe uh, say a few things about Ananda Murthy. And then I have another question about Tantra when you're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good question. And I mean, I, in the beginning of the book, I give my sort of story of awakening and try to frame that within, you know, I try to problematize it and talk about how, what am I seeking to accomplish by such a story? But for me, yeah, I was somebody who could not compartmentalize my life. And so what I mean by that is I was somebody who had a lot of existential angst. Mm-hmm. I was somebody who felt like I really needed I really needed a sense of meaning. I needed a sense of purpose and I didn't I, everywhere I looked I just found something that didn't feel compelling to me and it felt repugnant to me if anything. I was I came from a very privileged, you know, upper middle class um, location in Long Island and you know I went to I was one of three Latinos in my entire school of like 1200 and there was very much this push towards achievement in my school and I viewed it very cynically you know I just felt like they didn't care about anything except for the numbers that they could publish they didn't care about me you know and I didn't see the point of getting a good job I didn't see the point of making money I didn't see the point of even having a happy nice life because none of that felt meaningful to me and if it was all going to just end with death anyway, then what was the point? And so, you know, there's a lot of skeptical, you know, people who would view this narrative and already be thinking, well, of course you were drawn to something spiritual because spirituality gave you a sense of meaning. But, you know, and of course, from that framing, they're the ones who are brave enough to face the universe as it really is. But I would argue that 
we all experience some miniature version of this. You know, I think that some people do a better job than others of sort of trying not to pay attention to that angst, you know, to those existential feelings and trying, you know, like, I think other people are better at being able to compartmentalize that and just say, okay, that's scary, but right now I need to focus on studying. Right now I need to focus on getting a good job and so on and so forth. I was completely unable to do that. And so, yeah, I was a very, very destructive, you know, adolescent, I would say. And I sort of bottomed out pretty young when I was only 19 years old. And I took up meditation basically as an impulse because I felt like I, I really, really needed something. And I didn't know what that was. I had absolutely no discrimination in terms of who I was going to learn meditation from or anything like that. But about two weeks after you know, meditating every day. Yeah, I had this experience where I was meditating and it just kept on going until I realized hours had gone by. And I I didn't feel some sort of like revelation of God, but I just felt like this total peace. And I went to sleep. And the next day I went to my job, which was like a cart boy in a supermarket. And just throughout the day, and I described this in the preface of the book, I just had this cresting sense of ecstasy, like I was coming up on something, you know, and it's so sad that the only way I can describe this is by, you know, relating it to a drug, but it's like that. It's like, it's coming up. And before long, it was like, I couldn't even function. You know, I was just sitting on a bench in the parking lot crying for hours. It was just overwhelming. I could not, I couldn't talk to people. It was just like waves, like the way that you're at the beach and, uh, you know, a wave pummels you into the, the sand and you're flipping and you don't know which direction is up or down. And then you get hit by another one and another one. It's like the ecstasy version of that, the ecstatic version of that. And how it felt to me most experientially, the closest way I can describe it is it felt like falling in love. You know, it felt like there was this entity, this being that had loved me since before I existed and would continue to love me to the end of time. I had no philosophical framework, none, none whatsoever. That's how it felt like to me. And how I would now describe that experience is it was an experience, it was like the first recognition that there was a part of myself that goes deeper than this mask I'm wearing right now, my orientation and my ethnicity and my life circumstances that goes deeper than what I, whatever stupid thing I happen to be thinking or feeling in a given moment. There's something that has been there since the start and will be there till the end and has been there before there was a beginning and will be there after there is an end. You know, it's, a, it's, it's this eternal being that is expressing itself through this tiny little mask called Amal. That's how I would look at it now. I didn't understand that then. It was just very much a feeling of profound love. And, you know, the same way that I couldn't compartmentalize my existential angst beforehand, I couldn't just go back to normal. And I had nothing else going on in my life at the time. So I basically went to the person who taught me meditation, who was a monk. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I want to do this. And he said, okay, well, if you are serious about that, you know, there's uh, something you can do where you can go to a training and then you live with monks for some time. And what I didn't know at the time is because he was a tantric monk, 
for him, what it meant to engage with the world is that he was somebody who was dedicated towards, you know, social causes and social activism. You know, he, you know, his tantric orientation taught him that to be spiritual was to work towards a better world for all, not just all people, but all animals, all plants, you know, all of creation. You know, he wants to serve God by serving the so-called other that is there in front of him. And so I jumped on a plane and ended up in Denmark and then eventually went to a training in Germany where I was taught by this totally crazy monk who had been a political prisoner for years and was was tortured by, you know, during the Indira Gandhi regime. And he was like the spiritual version of a drill sergeant. I don't really talk about this in my book, but it was totally crazy in retrospect. You know, I had to, we were meditating more than eight hours a day and he was so tough on me. And one day he told me I was a spoiled American brat and he took away my socks and shoes and kicked me out of the house and told me I wasn't allowed to talk for a week. And so I just spent a week like wandering around the German countryside barefoot with my feet bleeding. And I built a hut in the woods. It was a crazy, crazy experience. But then after that training, which was a few months, then I lived with and worked with these monks who were much more normal <laughs> in based out of London. And they were working for a disaster relief organization, working to raise money for them. And after I did that for a time, I went I went back home and I went to college and yeah, that was my awakening, <laughs> my superhero origin story. And I say that, you know, ironically because, okay, what's the point of a story like that? What I've, if there's anything that I've learned in the two decades since is that these experiences don't mean anything unless you're able to live a life that other people can see you know, is aimed towards creating some sort of good. Right. And I've just been humbled by life over and over again to recognize that there are many people I've met who have never meditated a day in their life, who wouldn't call themselves spiritual ever, who are just so much more developed as a human than I am, who are just such an incredible representation of what human potential can really be. And, you know, I, I would do better to aspire to them you know, and what they've done with their life than to ruminate on how spiritual of an awesome guy I am, right. you know, and, but it did set me down a path and it really, I would not be who I am today had it not been for those experiences. I needed those experiences to be who I am now. And maybe that's why I had them. Maybe other people are better than me and that's why they don't need that. But that's, that was my path. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I love the idea of the activism and doing the mm -hmm. work, because I think, again, that's often left out in a lot of notions of spirituality in the West. It tends to be kind of narcissistic in, yes, in many ways, exactly. I think, you know, and I think to be of service is part of that moral path. So let me ask you to say a few words about Ananda Murti since oh yeah I didn't so, even bring that up my god yeah no that's okay I, no no it, it, well, I jammed a couple questions into one big question so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so yeah so, uh, who was he so Ananda Murti was uh, a guru probably I mean that was probably the most radical thing about me in San Francisco is I was you know that I actually have, have a guru he lived from 1922 to 1990, and he was a very important 
spiritual figure in that whole yoga, you know, meditation thrust towards the West that happened in the 60s and the 70s. He, however, is quite different from a lot of the other famous figures who come out of that sort of period of history, I would say most notably because he was so political. He was imprisoned from 1971 to 1978 by the Indira Gandhi regime because he was an anti-capitalist and because he was anti-communist. And he he basically, he was also, an he talked a lot about economics and politics and talked a lot about how, you know, spirituality and, you know, being a spiritual person has to be reflected in our morality. Therefore, we, if we are aiming at creating a better world, you know, for all, we have to be willing to challenge our social structures. And he was one of the very few gurus who was willing to say capitalism as a social structure does not encourage, you know, the liberation of human, of human beings. It doesn't address their, even their most basic needs. And it's leading towards an ecologically psychopathic future. And uh, Indira Gandhi, a lot of people don't have really much of a knowledge of what Indira Gandhi did, but she declared a state of emergency in 1975. She banned dozens of organizations that she considered a political threat, imprisoned thousands of people. And so Anandamurti was one of them. All of his followers were also thrown in jail. I know dozens of monks during that era who were imprisoned and tortured but then eventually he was let out, you know, when she, once she lost power in 1978 and spent the rest of his life until 1990 basically talking about this vision that spirituality has to be united with a struggle for, for a social good. And so he comes from the tantric tradition. You know, he very much posited a spirituality that should not be religious that should be something that can be universally applied to people, you know, no matter the differences in culture. And yeah, he was very dedicated towards those aims, I would say. And uh, yeah, I, it's a shame actually that he's not more well known in the West because in India, he was an extremely controversial figure. He's much more well known there, but you know, he did not care about money or celebrity. You know, you hear about these gurus who had collections of luxury vehicles, and it just blows my mind because I just come from a tradition that's just so radically different from that. But yeah, I would say that I've I've studied his philosophy quite extensively. I've, I've you know, I've, I've been practicing tantric meditation now for about 20 years, and I've really... I guess my whole mission has been that if we're going back to that story of awakening, that I had this experience and my fundamental struggle ever since then is how do we talk about this? You know, because I feel like I experienced something valuable. I feel like I'm now like holding on to these jewels and I want to share them. And so how do I talk about this? How do I bring people in? You know, how do I share something that I think can be of value. And it's not about conversion. It's not about me trying to sell you something. It's not about me trying to win you over. It's just about me trying to express that there's something deeper out there 
than just this world that we can experience through the senses, that there's a meaning that permeates every single aspect of existence and that we can get in touch with it for ourselves. And that can be the foundation of a struggle, you know, to build a better world for all, you know, and that's not something I don't see as religious. That's something I see as something that's universal. And I don't care what label a person has to describe themselves. I don't care if they're atheists. I don't care if they're spiritual. I don't care what they're up to. You know, it's just for me, you know, do you want a better world or do you want to exploit this world for your own selfish gain? So I guess that's my, again, characteristically <laughs> long-winded answer. <laughs> oh no, that's perfect. And it's actually a really good answer. And I think one that speaks to me in a lot of ways. And I know that a lot of, um, throughout history, having these spiritual experiences and, ideas like this the challenge is always expressing it it's always yeah. finding the words you know the right way to um convey the message and i think you did a beautiful job in the book and i think you're doing an amazing job <laughs> uh doing that now um, well, i really and, appreciate that yeah and i know that we're running out of time because i've got to run off to another meeting i would love to carry the conversation on even further but unfortunately, time. But let me ask you a couple of final questions here. What are you working on next? What am I working on next? It's such a, a funny question to hear when this has been just the obsession of my brain for the last couple of years. Yeah. I'm working on raising my beautiful daughter, my, my wonderful daughter. She's only two years old. No, but seriously, I'm I'm focused now on trying to figure out how to turn this into an audiobook because I just don't think that people read anymore. I don't feel like I, even I really read anymore compared to how I used to. So I'm really want to create this, turn this to an audiobook. I want to be able to just continue to teach as much as possible. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I if I seem sort of taken aback by the question, I guess it's because I feel like I've, I'm busy. You know, I'm a teacher. Yeah. I'm a parent. I just finished this book, but I'm a terrible self-promoter. <laughs> but I would say that I teach a lot for an organization, if anybody's interested, called the Planetary Leadership Training. I do a lot of classes there. I have a YouTube channel called Anandamurti 101. It's very different from what I do in the book because the book is really not... A, I mean, I, I cite Anandamurti, obviously. I'm obviously influenced by him because he's my spiritual teacher, but I really, the book is not about Anandamurti. The book right. is about how there can be a rational alternative to materialism and how it can help transition us out of the the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. But my YouTube channel is very much about the, you know, the building blocks of Anandamurti's tantric philosophy. Um, and I'll work to put more videos out on that channel. So that's Anandamurti 101. I also have a blog at integralhiking.com where I talk a lot about integral ecology, which mm -hmm. is in, in my view, deeply related to the issues that we've been talking about right. in this podcast. And yeah, I don't know. I do. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. And the, the blog is called integral hiking. Integralhiking.com. Okay. Yeah. But that the the stuff that I've been doing that's newer is on Anandamurti 101. Right. As soon as I get some more time, I'm basically going to get my act together and start publishing videos on there that are more directly related to my book 
And what I talk about there instead of, you know, just trying to teach yeah. the basics of an Anamortes philosophy. So people can follow me there if they wish to yeah, stay tuned with that. Yeah. But my so, book is on Amazon, Beyond Materialism. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll put a I'll put a link for it in the show notes in the video description. And we should I would love to talk to you about the integral ecology and the integral hiking. And in part because I try to hike every week, and I refer to that as my spiritual practice. Oh, it um, is a spiritual practice. Yeah. Well, and I I'll just share this. And this again, my listeners are probably getting really bored with this, but and I'm going to try to write something up about this, but. I, about 10 or 12 years ago, I made the decision that I really wanted to try to connect to a piece of land. And Mm. so I began hiking the same trail every week. Oh my God. I would go every Friday and uh, it was this uh, canyon that was adjacent to NASA's jet propulsion lab uh, down in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. And I ended up calling it my Friday office. And I am mourning <laughs> right now because I moved back to Colorado. And oh, I am yeah, because still... you've got no nature in Colorado. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it's not that because I've said before how much I miss my Friday office and people mm-hmm. will respond, oh, well, you'll find another one. It's like, but no, yeah, but teasing. that's, yeah, that's missing the point that I mm-hmm. developed this profound connection to a land. And it's, for me, that's kind of what is difficult to describe, you know, the, the changes that I saw over this like 12 year period of time. Um, uh, so anyway, I just had to mention that because you, uh, I know, I know we're pressed for time, but I have to comment on this. It's actually spooky to me because, you know, you went to the same program as I did from what I understand at CIAS and my master, I had to give a talk you know, at the end, you know, a thesis or something like that. I don't remember what it was called. And it was on this exact topic. And I did the same exact thing in the Bay Mm -hmm. areas as I, I found a spot and I went to it over and over and over again. I went in the middle of the night. I went in all weather conditions, no matter the storm. And yeah, it sounds crazy until you do it. But I remember Mm -hmm. describing to somebody at the time, because I was the same way in New York, which Mm -hmm. is where I'm from. I remember describing to some of my friends in the West coast it, i said it feels like i'm cheating on my wife yeah. developing a relationship to a piece of land out here you know but it's such a such a deep part of who i am for me it's just yeah it's if spirituality is about presence mm-hmm. and presence with the ground of being then how can that not include land right. and why isn't our hiking about something more than just consuming someplace so i can put it on my social media right so i really respond to everything you're saying yeah 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 just have to share that yeah, well, thank you. And I will definitely look at your integral hiking blog. Um, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to start uh, creating more videos for my YouTube channel. So it's not just going to be the podcast interviews, but yeah, on my YouTube I'm, channel, I actually have that talk on integral hiking that okay, I, yeah. I posted it there. All right. Well, I will look at that then. I look forward to that. So the final question for you is where can people go to find out more about you? I think you are on social media. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm on social media. You can follow me on Instagram. If you look up Amal Jacobson, A-M-A-L, Jacobson with an S-O-N, I'll pop up. I'm not on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called these days, but Instagram is probably, and YouTube are probably the best place to follow me. Instagram is all just nature and YouTube is more tantra and philosophy. Okay. 
Uh, right on. Well, I'll put links to your Instagram uh, site on the uh, show notes and video description as well. So Amal, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I highly recommend your book. It was a good read. It's a very accessible read. I don't think it is. I, I think that you take a lot of really important ideas and make them available to a broad audience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm very humbled to hear that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure talking to you too. It's been a lot of fun. Really. Okay, well, all right. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 97 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio and please support my work, uh, you can sign up to become a patron. You can find a link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. Some of the perks for patrons include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server and a monthly book club. And I'm working on developing more perks as well. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help with the podcast is to share it with friends, family members, coworkers, anyone that you think might be interested, and share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always like to say, I'm out here doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be at peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.